0: I got to work at a brewery when I was in seminary. It was a great seminary job. So people have been making beer for over 6,000 years. It started in the ancient Near East. Shortly after that, they figured out how to make bread. (laughs) But beer came first. They have um, evidence of some kind in caves and tombs from the ancient Near East dating back over 6,000 years of alcohol, beer, grain. But here's the thing, they didn't know what was happening. All they knew is that if you take some grain and you cook it in water, and you leave the water outside for a while, it gets kind of bubbly, and uh, and good things happen. It's the same with the bread. If you take grain and you grind it into flour and mix it with water and some Sugar, and then you just leave it outside for a while, something spontaneously happens to the bread. Um, for thousands of years, everyone knew what was happening in beer and bread. In both cases, you leave them out, and alcohol is produced, gas is produced. So, in the case of bread, what you want is the gas. For those little bubbles in the bread, in the case of the beer, which you want is the alcohol. But in either case, you just leave it outside and grain spontaneously produces alcohol and gas. In fact, if you take some of the old bread and put it in new bread, it kind of speeds up the process that there's everyone knew the effects of what was happening. But it wasn't until sixteen fifty that someone first observed a yeast. And even in 1650, the scientist who first saw it thought of it as a nondescript, non-living globule of some kind, and it really wasn't until 1857 that uh, Lewis Pasteur published his paper on the existence of yeast and how yeast feeds on sugars and produces alcohol and gas, thereby making alcohol in beer and the gas in bread. So for about 5,800 years, we were using and propagating yeast and knowing exactly what was happening without having any idea what was actually happening or where this power was coming from. When we look at Jesus in the Gospels, it's easy to tell what the effects of his ministry are, that he refuses to sin, and he brings peace and healing to the brokenhearted. He proclaims the year of the Lord's favor. And Yet I think it's easy for us to see what's happening and yet actually miss the power of why it's happening without seeing what's happening inside. And yet all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all begin... With the story of the baptism of Jesus and the descent of the Holy Spirit. In three of the four, we also hear that the heavens opened up. A sign of revelation and words were spoken that the people present heard someone say, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And in all the gospels, these things must happen before Jesus does any ministry. Think that we are tempted to think that Jesus did what he did because he's God. Well, and, and that that's that's true. Jesus is God. I'm not saying that he's not God. But Jesus was also a man, just like you and me, with the same temptations and hurts and experiences that we have and the same weaknesses in every way. He says he was tempted in every way like we are. He had a nature exactly as ours. But because of the power of the Holy Spirit descending and remaining on him, he was empowered to do what he did in his ministry. This is what is important about the baptism and the Holy Spirit, and the words from his Father. We talked last Sunday about John the Baptist and his work and his witness, and how without John, the Gospel of John, ever citing Isaiah, that John the Baptist was, in a sense, the man of Isaiah, that his, his theology, his mission is driven by his understanding of the book of Isaiah, and especially the prophecies of the suffering servant. We talked last time about one of the marks of the suffering servant, the one that Isaiah said God will send us in the future that will set everything right. The mark of the suffering servant is the presence of the Holy Spirit. I'll read these again because they're well worth hearing. Isaiah 42.1, the Lord says, Behold, behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And again, speaking of the suffering servant, the same thought is repeated 20 chapters later. Isaiah 62, 1. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, he has set me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of prison to those who are bound. All because the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. The second passage, the one from Isaiah 61, Jesus actually applies to himself. In the Gospel of Luke, he receives his baptism, goes out, experiences the temptation in the wilderness, comes back, and the first thing he does is enter into the synagogue in his hometown. He grabs the scroll, sits down, which communicates the exact opposite that it does in our culture. It would be like standing up front. Reads this passage, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. To bring good news to the poor, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of prison to those who are bound. He reads a couple more verses. He says, today, in your hearing, these words have been fulfilled. And he sits down. And there was a long, awkward, amazing silence. It would have been so awesome to be there. Just feel the discomfort in the room. Because people don't apply Messianic prophecies to themselves every day. But Jesus is agreeing with the assessment of John the Baptist. I am the one. I am the suffering servant whom you have been looking for. And again, he agrees with John the Baptist's analysis. We know, you can know, that I am the one Because I am the one on whom the Spirit of the Lord has descended. He has anointed me. He's referring to his own baptism. The moment where John the Baptist baptized him and he rose out of the water. Light shone down. The Holy Spirit descended visibly as a dove. Who knows what that means? And the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That the Lord anointed him. With the Holy Spirit, he is, he is the one, the servant who has been anointed with the Holy Spirit. Christians are preaching the good news about Jesus in Acts chapter 10. They say, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning with Galilee and after the baptism that John proclaimed. Namely, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. That this was even the message of the preachers, the apostles, the evangelists in the early church. This was their method. Jesus is the one because he was anointed with the Holy Spirit and with power. That throughout the Bible, the Holy Spirit is connected with the idea of power. In the Old Testament, the word for spirit is ruach. It's sort one of those poetic words because it really means wind. That's why Jesus can say, you don't know where the wind is blowing, but you see its effects. So it is with the wind. Or he might also be saying, you know where the Spirit's blowing, you see its effects. So it is with the Spirit. that The, the Spirit is the wind. That's, that's the same word. That the word they chose to describe, Holy Spirit, is Wind. And you can't see it, but it, it accomplishes things. It brings them about. The Spirit has a creative force. That In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth, except we find in the New Testament it was actually Jesus who did that, probably the Father designed. And so Jesus has this power to create things out of nothing. Ex nihilo, as they say that. There's nothing. There was, it was formless and void. And Jesus brought it into being. And yet, Spirit is there also. He's hovering over the water like a dove. And he has a creative force of his own. Though it seems as if the Spirit's creative force is not to create out of nothing, but to create with what's already there. That Jesus creates, the Spirit breathes life. Into everything that lives. In the New Testament, it's the Spirit who overshadows Mary, the mother of Christ. And creates, through his power, the life of Christ within her. That he works with what's already there. That the Christ is literally made out of Mary's substance. This is essential to our faith that he was a real man, and yet the creative force of life came from the Holy Spirit, working with what's there and bringing life. And so this spirit of life, of recreation of power, descends on Christ. It's not the first time that he's come. Of course, he made everything living in the beginning. Um, We frequently hear of the Spirit, even in the Old Testament, that Samson, Tore down the Philistine temple by the power of the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit came upon him like a wind and gave him this power to push the columns apart and to bring that great building down. That the prophets spoke and, as it were, were carried along by the power of the Holy Spirit. That He is um, does not, as Brandon said, show up for the first time in Acts two. That He is at work throughout the Old Testament and the Father's bringing them to faith, giving power when necessary, speaking through the prophets. And yet now he has come to reside in one. As Jesus says, without measure, he descends, and as John the Baptist says, the Spirit remains. That Samson had the power of the Spirit for a moment, The prophets had the power of the Spirit in the moment of communicating the gospel with Jesus. We see what happens when the Spirit resides on a person without measure and indefinitely. Jesus says of himself in John chapter 3 that he has and gives the Spirit without measure. In Matthew 12, he drives out the demons... By the power of the Spirit. As we're going to see in a minute, in Luke chapter 4, it's the power of the Spirit that literally drives Jesus into the wilderness, into the moment of temptation. That everything we are to understand that Jesus did and accomplished in his ministry, he did because he had with him Holy Spirit, who gave him courage, fortitude, hope, power, connection with the Father. It was the power of the Holy Spirit upon him that equipped him for his ministry. John says in our passage, his summation of his witness, verse 34, I have seen, I have borne witness. This is the Son of God because I saw the Spirit descend on him. He is the one. All of these uh, verbs are in the most absolute, most final, already finished form that you can find in Greek. I have seen. I have borne witness. This is the Son of God. John the Baptist can't say it any more emphatically than he does. And it has everything to do with the power and presence of the Spirit. This is the one from whom we heard, who we've been looking for in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah. Jesus is commissioned with the power of the Holy Spirit. He also has, we find out in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This is why I added the Matthew passage. He has the love of his Father. The power of the Holy Spirit and the love of his Father. Because in the other three Gospels, as soon as Jesus ascends out of the water and the Spirit descends, we hear the voice, Behold, take it in, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That the Father from heaven identifies Jesus not as someone he's adopted or anointed, but he claims and is in fact his own son. Now in Old Testament terminology, there was not an expectation that the Messiah would come and be God. What the phrase Son of God meant in the Old Testament and really throughout the Near Eastern world was king. That even as they believed in the Middle Ages, kings rule by divine right. That the king is, as it were, the son of God. That God refers to David as the son of God in the Old Testament. Well, no, he's Jesse's son. But by virtue of his authority as king, He's son of God. He represents God. He's the representative head of the people with the love and the authority that comes with being God's chosen son. Psalm 2, which was already in the day of Jesus recognized as a messianic psalm speaking of the Messiah who had come, says in verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And so it's entirely possible that even the people who were there, present at Jesus' baptism, hear these words from heaven, Behold, my son, today, I have begotten him. I am well pleased. Even those present may have heard Psalm 2 and recognized that the Father is certifying from heaven This is my son. He's the king. He's the new king of David with all authority in heaven and earth. So we have the anointing of the Holy Spirit, just like the prophets had in the Old Testament. We have the washing of water in baptism, which the priests went through before they began their ministry. And we have the title Son of God, which is the title of a king. And so here we have a rising out of the water our prophet, our priest, and our king. One individual certified to fulfill all three Old Testament offices. And so Jesus says of himself in John 26, God has set his seal upon me. That in speaking these words from heaven and visibly giving me the Holy Spirit, God seals certifies, just as a king would use his ring and wax to certify, this message is for me, that the Father has sealed and certified the Son as his representative. And so he goes in the wilderness to face the temptation. That in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's this thought that Jesus receives this status, this ceiling, the power of the Holy Spirit and the love of the Father to equip him for battle. That he's fortified with the weapon of the Holy Spirit and the confidence that comes in the love of the Father to send him out to go onto the battlefield. This is why Luke 4, 1 says that Jesus was propelled, driven, Pushed with the power of the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. That he has received this power, this status for the purpose of battle, and he is going to go into the wilderness and do battle. That when we hear of the temptations and read and contemplate the temptations of Christ, I think most often we think of them in terms of the ways that we are tempted and how we succumb, and so what a difficult time it must have been for Jesus. And it was, that's all true. But we miss the sense in which the temptations in the wilderness are a cosmic showdown. That it's, to borrow words from Sinclair Ferguson, it's an assault on the devil. It's a replay of the Garden of Eden in which the first Adam who had the presence and love of his father, faced a moment of temptation from the devil and believed that the Lord was not out for his good and so fell. And here we have, at long last, after so many generations, one who through the power of the Holy Spirit can re-enter for the first time that battlefield to do battle with the great tempter again and win. It's an assault on the kingdom and power of the devil. And the devil immediately works to try and convince Jesus that the path of suffering, the path of the suffering servant, and the path of of sonship and the love of the Father are mutually exclusive paths. The devil is saying, Jesus, you could suffer, but why would you do that? Because you're the one. And I can release you from suffering so that you can have status under my authority. And Jesus will have none of it. That he is the one that Israel has been waiting for all these years who can walk into the most treacherous and difficult of situations in which none of us would survive and blow the devil away, which is why Luke also says the devil was forced to retreat until an opportune time. But in that moment, his ultimate power has been forever broken. In Luke's gospel... Luke inserts, in between the baptism of Jesus and the temptation in the wilderness, his genealogy. Jesus, the son of Joseph, the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, the son of of so-and-so, traces it all the way back, not to Abraham, but to Adam. He's drawing your attention to what we've just said, that Jesus is the new Adam. Just as Paul speaks of in his gospel, the first Adam was tempted and died the second Adam faced temptation in the power of the Holy Spirit, faced sin, resisted, said no, and broke the power of the devil, and has now become the second Adam, the first leader of a new race of people. We know that once this happens, once we have one who can face the devil and the power of the Holy Spirit and win, now we know that the year of the Lord's favor is here. It's come at last. Again, Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to confirm to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. That having broken the power of sin and death, he's now free to bring the year of the Lord's favor. This is that same passage that he immediately after the temptation goes into the synagogue and applies to himself. And so equipped with the power of the Holy Spirit and having defeated the devil, that's what he proceeds to do. He heals people of their physical ailments. He proclaims a gospel of freedom, of forgiveness of sins. He goes and brings life into the world. Physically, spiritually, emotionally, takes the brokenhearted and binds them up. And all three Gospels, this is immediately what starts happening. Healings, prophecies, preachings, all of these things proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. Oh, Jesus has the power of the Holy Spirit, the love of his father to do battle against sin and to bring mercy and justice into the world. So what do we do with that? Well, I think the first thing to do is just do what the Father said. Behold. Wow. To just take him in. He's the one. He's the one we've been longing for all these years. Isn't he beautiful? Does it get any better than that? Have you ever seen or heard or met someone so majestic, so honorable, so beautiful and heartwarming and encouraging in every way? My friends, because you live in the 21st century, you are a people of cynicism. You do not trust authority. You know that people are crooks. And there's truth to that. There's something healthy about postmodernism that we know human beings aren't really to be trusted. So just in the last three days, we found out that Hillary Clinton, as Secretary of State, used her office to get foreign countries to buy billions of dollars worth of Boeing airplanes, and then Boeing turned around and gave her foundation $900,000. Well, that's not quite right. And so we grow to expect that. We know, nah, politics, not worth it. Leaders, not trustworthy. They're all crooks. Lawyers, too. This group them in there. But yet when we live and communicate out of our cynicism, all we do is communicate to the world that that's all that there is. That to have one who really is righteous, who can bring hope and change, is not worth hoping in. And yet, my friends, that's what we have in Jesus. He is the leader that you've always wanted to put your weight down on in your heart and yet didn't think that you really could. He's the one worth campaigning for, except in his kingdom. That's not how we bring about his power. It's a different sermon. But he's worth it. If that's what it took, that's what we would do. Wouldn't we? He's worth doing anything. If we could just get this guy, this guy, in power, he's actually worth worshiping. We can adore him and make posters of him and bow down to him, and it's not funky. It's actually great. Because he's the anointed one. He's the suffering servant who can proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That for us, it's a spiritual exercise to let go of cynicism and to just embrace, to take in, to be happy, to enjoy one who really is that glorious in every way, to experience not the old, decrepit age of cynicism but the youth of life and vitality and hope. But there's another part of this. Because the Holy Spirit didn't just come for Jesus. He came upon Jesus so that Jesus could give him to us. That's John the Baptist's message. John the Baptist's message actually isn't that Jesus came so that he could die for our sins and we could be set free. Now, I think John the Baptist understood that. That's why he calls Jesus the Lamb of God. But that's not his message. In John the Baptist's teaching, the reason Jesus came is so that he could receive the Holy Spirit and give it to you. Which makes sense because that's what Isaiah teaches. The suffering servant is going to come and he's the one who, because he has the Spirit without measure, can share it with us. Do you remember our four points about Jesus? That he has the, the Holy Spirit, the love of his Father, to do battle against sin, and to bring mercy, justice, and peace into the world. Now, we're, when we're baptized into Jesus, baptized in the Holy Spirit, those are the same things, by the way, when you become a believer, that happens. You don't become Jesus But you become in him. And by virtue of being in Jesus, we receive what he has. We receive the spirit of Jesus because it's his spirit. That the spirit has been with him from the beginning that accompanied him in everything that he did and empowered him in what he did. And because he has it and we're in him, he shares it with us. He has the love of His Father. And because He has it, and He's won it by His own righteousness and death on the cross, He can share it with us. Not that we have won the status, but because we're in Christ, His Spirit becomes our Spirit, and the love and satisfaction that He has before the Father becomes ours. So you can now by virtue of being in Jesus, go out into the world with the power of the Holy Spirit and the love of your Father, knowing that God the Father can't love you any more than he already does because he loves his Son and his Son has shared his Spirit with you. So Jesus accomplished what he did in his ministry with the power of the Holy Spirit and the love of the Father. And it turns out that those are the same two tools that we have. We have. To do battle against sin. And to bring justice and mercy into the world. Now, knowing that those things happen because we're under him, this is the distinction. Just because God has something in his nature doesn't mean that we live the same way, right? But because so he accomplishes salvation, we don't do that. But because we're in him, the sorts of things that he does become the things that we are empowered to do. He accomplished salvation to make that possible. And so receiving his salvation, we are now empowered by the Holy Spirit in our fight against sin. And we're set free from the power of sin so that we, as his followers, can go out and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is still that year. It's not a calendar year. It's an era. The new covenant is the year of the Lord's favor. And so everything that Christ had at his disposal in his fight against sin... And his movement to redeem the world is now at our disposal through him. This is John the Baptist's message. This is why he came, to baptize with the Holy Spirit. That the whole vision of the New Testament is that God created his people to be his representatives to the world. They messed it up. And so someday we need the servant to come to give us the Holy Spirit that we might be humble that we might stop lying and bring his message and character to the world. In our present era, there's great freedom in this that we have the boundaries of the moral law, don't kill people, don't lie, steal and cheat or steal, but within that playing field there's great freedom for us to explore what we can do with the power of the Holy Spirit and the love of our Father. Usually at this point in the sermon, I would do an illustration about how if you haven't thought about going into the ministry, you should. And if you haven't, you should. Because that's how I got up here. Look, friends, I never woke up one day and thought, you know what, I have gifts to be a pastor. I should be a pastor. What happened to me is another pastor said, how do you know you're not called to be a pastor? And I realized I didn't know. And so here I am. But I'm going to do a different illustration, actually. So I went to seminary, and one of my friends was John Perkins. He'd been there longer than me because he was married and had kids, and so was going through the process a little slower. But by the time he ended up, ended up in the same class as me, and we all thought he was great because he was a little bit older and had kids. And that just makes people smarter and more organized somehow. <laughs> all the married guys in seminary could like get their homework done in two hours and play with their kids and we're single, we got all the time in the world. We're up till two in the morning trying to get stuff done. So John's in seminary and um he's been kinda in the system his whole life, went to a Christian high school, Christian college, now he's in seminary thinking about going into ministry. He also went to the same church that I did, did some sermons, was leading worship. And while at seminary, well, let me back up a little bit. So John's fun to be around because he, he loves the Lord and the scriptures, but also he's like a real person. Uh, he has interests outside of the church, loves sports, check an ESPN every four minutes in class. So if you sat behind John, you kind of always knew how the Cardinals were doing. John also loves food. And uh, he's an amazing cook. Susie and I actually got him to cook the food for our rehearsal dinner. And as John began to understand this, the power of the Holy Spirit and the freedom of his father's love, more and more, he felt less constrained to do what he felt like he always ought to do, be in the system and go be a pastor, and more freedom to just ask, what has the Lord given me? What do I love? And what might it look like for me to love him? And he began exploring that more and more. So his last year in seminary, to support himself through seminary, he started an underground restaurant, kind of like Brittany Burkhalter used to do, if you remember her, that um, you could get on this email list, and the day of, you would get emailed a secret location, and you could show up, and there's this just these massive tables and this amazing seven-course meal with wine pairings, and it happens just one night, and then poof, it's gone, and then a month later, it happens somewhere else, and this thing, man, this thing was catching on. Before you knew it, who's who is in on john perkins um, underground restaurant he got written up multiple times in the st louis food magazine and then in the new york times and so after he graduated seminary he opened a restaurant and a catering business and that's what he does to this day still is getting written up in the new york times Look, friends, the fame is not the point. The point is not that he became famous. The point is that because he knows that the Father loves him and he's here to bless the world, he has a vision of what it looks like to make great food and to bring people together in community at a long table. You can look up interviews of him online where he's talking about he loves doing what he does because he sets up these long tables and people who don't know each other sit together on the same bench and it's a long experience and they just talk together about the food and about each other and he creates relationship and a moment of joy now is he proclaiming the gospel in words no but he is bringing mercy and peace and joy into the world so much so that people want to be part of what he's doing Most of the cooks in St. Louis have been to his restaurant. People want to partner with him and be on it. He's created in the power of the Holy Spirit and the freedom of Christ something creative and beautiful that honors the Lord, that communicates in an underground way the gospel so that people want to be a part of it. And behind the scenes, when people come to him and say, why do you do what we do? He's able to talk to them about the freedom of Jesus and the joy and freedom of community and to communicate the gospel through it. So I hope that gives you a little flavor of what it might be like to become freedom, Holy Spirit-empowered people to be creative about how the Lord has empowered you to fight against sin and represent Him in the world. Let's pray.